every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. Welcome to a new week. Monday, the 21st of August. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk. You can find this program on Substack, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Just look for Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And that's also where you'll find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. And thank you for making us one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and Singapore, according to Pod Status. In today's business and finance headlines, China Evergrande Group has filed for bankruptcy protection in the US court as the world's most indebted developer works on a massive restructuring deal with its creditors. The company is seeking protection under Chapter 15 of the US Bankruptcy Code, which is for foreign companies seeking recognition of their restructuring in the US. The process will protect its U.S. assets as it works on the restructuring of its more than 19 billion U.S. dollars in offshore debts. The United States, Japan and South Korea have committed to consult on mutual threats posed by China and North Korea, conduct joint military exercises, hold annual summits and create new lines of communication. The Stronger Alliance, struck Friday at a landmark summit at Camp David, forms part of a network of partnerships that the US has created from India to Australia and Southeast Asia and that the Biden administration hopes will alter the strategic landscape against China. China's securities regulator on Friday announced a package of market-friendly reforms to try and boost capital market investor confidence. The CSRC said on Friday that it was considering an extension to trading hours for the country's stock and bond markets and vowed to cut transaction fees for brokers. It also said it would encourage share buybacks to help stabilise stock prices. Separately, in a statement released on Sunday, the PBOC urged banks to increase lending to companies to bolster growth and stimulate consumption. On today's programme, I'm joined by Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Alvin Chua, Managing Partner of Mensa 360 Global Advisors. And providing a view on mainland China will be China Specialist and author Mark O'Neill. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Volatility in the U.S. Treasury markets that has pushed 10-year yields close to their highest point since 2007 weighed on U.S. stocks last week. China growth and credit fears also negatively impacted sentiment. The S&P 500 was lower Friday by just one point, finishing at 4,370. The Dow added 26 points and was roughly 0.1% higher to close at 34,501. The Nasdaq Composite slipped to 0.2%, ending the session at 13,291. For the week, the S&P 500 lost 2.1%. That's its biggest weekly loss since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank in March. And all 11 S&P 500 sectors ended the week lower. The Dow lost 2.2% over the five sessions. That's its worst week since March. The Nasdaq Composite shed 2.6%, tumbling for a third consecutive losing week of first since December. And last week, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield rose to its highest level since June 2008. 
However, yields eased from their highs on Friday, with the rate on the 10-year Treasury five basis points lower at 4.25%. For the week, Treasury yields were all higher, with yields rising the most at the long end. The 30-year yield was up 11 basis points at 4.38%, while the 10-year rose nine basis points. The two-year yield rose five basis points to 4.94%. And the effect of that was to steepen the yield curve even further. In other words, leaving it less inverted. In the currency markets, the Japanese yen staged a decent comeback versus the dollar on Friday. The dollar retreated a third of a percent to 145.37 Japanese yen. Chinese authorities told state-owned banks to step up intervention in the currency market last week. The request came as the yuan fell towards 7.35 per dollar. That's heading for the weakest level since 2007. The People's Bank of China set its fixing uh, just above 7.20 per dollar compared to an average estimate of 7.30 and a half. And that was the largest gap to estimates since polls of banks were first conducted back in, back in uh, 2018. In onshore markets, the yuan fell 0.6% over the week to 7.28 renminbi. And for 2023 so far, the Chinese currency has dropped 5.6% against the dollar. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index. That shed 376 points, or 2.1%, to end the day at 17,951. And for the week, the city's benchmark index plunged 5.9%, putting it in a technical bear market. Chinese tech stocks declined on Friday following weak earnings and pessimism over the country's economic prospects. The Hang Seng Tech Index fell 3.6%, taking its losses for the week to 6.2%. And the Hang Seng China Enterprises Index, which tracks the largest mainland companies listed in the city, fell 2.3%. And it's plunged 11% this month to become the worst performer among 92 global equity gauges. And looks like the Hang Seng is going to fall more further at the open this morning. Futures markets projecting a decline of about 150 points, putting it at just about 17,800 at the open. And you can get more details on the latest, mar- latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Today's programme, we have two giants of the investment industry in Hong Kong. As always on a Monday morning, Alex Wong, Director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Morning, Alex. Hi, morning, Peter. And joining us also this morning, Alvin Chua, who is Managing Partner of Mensa 360 Global Advisors. Morning, Alvin. Good morning, Peter. Um, Well, let's start with um, a couple of things that are really starting to weigh on the markets now. First of all, Treasury yields, and then secondly, China growth and credit fears. As we heard earlier, the 10-year Treasury yield risen to the highest point since 2007. I mean, Alex, the yields have been rising for a while, but it seems all of a sudden last week um, that the stock markets are starting to take notice of this. What's changed? I think uh, the change is that uh, we are seeing uh, the yield curve deepening on the demand for or from investors for uh, higher risk premium on U.S. treasuries, especially mm. on the long end, because uh, I think uh, this is triggered by the um, downgrade by Fitch. Uh, this this steepening actually is not is is quite bearish because we are we are having a real yield problem in the in the market right now, because inflation actually is decelerating, but uh, the demand for higher risk premium actually would make the real yield higher because mm. uh, this is not caused by the uh, higher inflation actually it's caused by the demand for higher risk premium, so that means a bond 
more attractive uh, in the long term. So and also make stock less attractive because uh, right now you can get about four percent lock in ten year treasury right now, and 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 those companies which are basing more on the future earnings actually will be discounted uh, for less values right now. So that's why you are seeing ALKK down over probably twenty five percent from the top uh, in the last. Uh, Two few weeks. Mm. And how big a risk-off event is this likely to be then for for markets? I think at least we need to see some stabilization in the in the yield curve, uh, and and we also need the uh, deceleration in the inflation to be faster, because uh, right now the risk premium actually will probably will stay there. Uh, so uh, we probably need the deflation, uh, inflation to to come down more to 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 make the base rate less uh, uh, decline. Because uh, right now I think uh, people probably would still demand a high risk premium on U.S. Treasury because I think a Fitch actually um, make people realize that the current model uh, may not be sustainable in the long term. Uh, U.S. actually would pay more interest uh, because uh, those are low uh, coupon rates. Treasury actually would expire soon, and then will be replaced by higher coupon rates. Mm-hmm. So that means the uh, federal def- deficit by the U.S. government actually would would increase year by year from now. And then we are not seeing any real actions by the U.S. government to to, to make the deficit less. So the long term uh, sustainability of the current model actually would would be questionable. So I think people actually are, are aroused by the downgrade. So this is uh, why the market reacts so much. I think this is a real yield problem, not just the yield problem right now. Okay, so so get it. So Alvin, what, what, how big a risk event do you think this is for, for the markets, for the stock markets in particular? Uh, for, the, for the stock market, uh, Peter, I think it's minimal. Uh, the more focus right now is on the, on, on the U.S. Treasury yield, and I think it was brought by a number of factors. <laughs> Remember a few months ago, the U.S. Congress were debating on the debt ceiling increase. So the U.S. Treasury had been delaying issuing um, the, the new the uh, come coming to the market with new issues. So now that the debt ceiling being raised and they're into the market on a combination of uh, aggressive borrowing funding the U.S. government, right? Secondly, uh, we are the last few weeks witnessing a bear market flattening i.e. the front end of the curve is not moving, staying steady, mm-hmm. while the 10-year yield has been creeping higher. Now, um, a, a combination of reasons. One is the QE reversal, right? Uh, since the, the, the two years ago, or since a year ago, the, the U.S., uh, the Federal Reserve have been reversing the QE. Um, now they, they're not buying anymore, not mm-hmm. the long end of the curve. So it's been a, a, They've a, sold about a trillion dollars they, so sold far, about a trillion, they? Or let, let mature, let a trillion mature, right, mm, so to yeah. speak. Now, the fish downgrade uh, a few weeks ago awoken what we so-called the market bond market vigilantes, right? Uh, the U.S. government uh, for the 2023 fiscal year is going to pay about $663 billion of interest expense in mm. 2023. And that number is going to increase to 1.4 trillion 10 years from now, the way yeah, the, we, we are progressing. So um, now, uh, a couple months ago, particularly uh, with the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank, the market was anticipating the Fed is going to cut rate by the end of this year. That has been pushed back. Mm. The, Fed, the, the Fed fund futures is rising in the earliest possible we may next year. And now, this past week, the market chatter been, um, Fed may not be done yet, 
there is a possibility, there is a possibility, Fed may actually high rate one more time or a few more times uh, before it's all over, right? Now, with the, with, with the U.S. growth, the Q3, Q3, the preliminary projection is 5.8%. At 5.8% and the historic low in unemployment rate, the Fed may not be done yet. Mm. Right. But, but if you look at the minutes of, of the last meeting that, that came out last week, the, there are signs there, aren't there, that, that Fed officials are getting more cautious about raising rates. Exactly, exactly. The Fed may be, you know, I, I think it's, it's a split you know, FOMC uh, members, right? Uh, yes, they are getting more cautious, but it's data dependent depending on what transpires over the next two or three months. Uh, now, I, I, I personally believe the Fed was done on July 26, but the market looking at the uh, now look uh, inflation have receded a lot now mm. with the headline inflation mm. at 3.2 percent. That is a very welcoming uh, now, but nevertheless, you look at historic unemployment rate. Uh, the, the 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 energy price continues to be quite resilient, and the GDP growth. That has bond market starting to worry. Mm. But um, if you look at um, what's happening in terms of the soft landing, um, it looks like we may not even get any landing at all because the economy is starting to accelerate, isn't it? And if you look at the Atlanta Fed um, GDP now forecast, I think they were forecasting, what was it, 5, 5.2% or something, which 5. is 5.8%, yeah, which is just almost unbelievable, isn't it, for the US economy this quarter? Exactly, exactly. Now, this, now, now the new buzzword is forget about soft landing. There is no landing. Yeah. Right? 5.8% is cruising speed, and that's not for US economy. It's more of a child for China economy. <laughs> is, is it realistic, Alex? I mean, 5.8%. I mean, it, it, surely we're not going to see that sort of growth in the US economy. Of course, I think you know, this is not um, what we will see in the long term, I think. It's just... Uh, Probably just a short-term thing. I think. Uh, I. 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 think. Of course, U.S. economy is more resilient than we think. Mm. But um, in the long run, I think the the higher yields actually would uh, would would play a part. And also, I think in the meantime, probably people would uh, question about the AI uh, business model. So I think this is another factor which we will see corrections, especially in the tech sector. And we got Jackson Hole this week. The, the theme of that is structural shifts in the global economy. So maybe we might get some clues there from Jerome Powell when he talks on Friday about um, what this means for the Fed. And presumably that's going to be important for the bond market as well. Oh, of course. I think... Uh we 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 are in an era that uh, the, the the wealth is very polarized right now. Uh, so um, the, the the wealthier actually is uh, getting um, larger shares, and then we are also in the AI development right mm. now. So I think uh, that is a uh, deflationary mm. uh, in the long term. So right now the inflation factor actually is paid by certain parts, uh, which may not be sustainable in the long term. So uh, I think inflation will come down eventually. Uh, but uh, in the long, in the meantime, what I've said, the real yield problem actually persists for a while. So I think uh, uh, this problem may cha- not change. But all we need, presumably, is one bad data print between now and, say, the end of the year, and everything changes again, doesn't it? Suddenly they'll be talking about how many more times the Fed has got to raise rates. Yeah, uh, I think uh, uh, the risk premium would remain there, so the yield curve probably would steepen. Mm. And the longer end actually uh, probably would stay a little bit higher. I think the spread would, would stay. Uh, but the base rate actually uh, would be variable. So I think uh, that is uh, what 
what, why I said that the inflation need to decelerate faster, because I, right now in the mean, uh, people are uh, calling for a high risk premium. Mm. But uh, this bear steepening, Alex, that you're talking about for um, Alvin, that you're talking about for the uh, for the yield curve, it doesn't have to be a problem, does it, for stocks? Provided um, the outlook for corporate profits, it also improves as well. But but is it is is that happening or not? Um, exactly, it's not a major problem for the equity market. The tailwind from the economic growth must much you know, much make up for the higher interest rate. Mm-hmm. The new theme that emerged these two weeks will be interest rates will remain higher for longer. So even if the ten-year yield were to remain you know, around four four and a half percent level, right, it's not going to be do significant tail headwind to the economy. Now, there's structural change in the economy, right? Um, the, uh, the Fed rate hike from zero to five and a quarter have not had much impact on consumer spending. One would be, say, like in the, in a, in the mortgage rate in the U.S., right? Mm. 65% of the mortgage rate are below 4%, 4% or below. Now, you can hike rate to five and a quarter percent for people who already lock in 30 year mortgage at three, at four, below four, 65 percent of the entire stock of mortgages, mortgage loans in the U.S. below, below four, four percent. Mm. It's not make any, any dent on consumer spending. Right. Similarly, on the corporates, corporates who have locked in 10 year, 30 year money, uh, two years ago, at the at the lowest interest rate possible in 2020, uh, now at, at around two percent, two and a half percent, the Fed can raise rate. It's not going to make significant impact for those corporates who have pre-funded themselves and lock in long-term cheap money. Hmm. So I, I, I'm I'm worried that if there's any mistake that the policy mistake the Fed is going to make will make that would derail the economic growth will be. Now, the policy mistake, they hide too much right. because there's a delay, significant, much longer delay effect from the, from the, from the, from the policy impact from the, from the Fed rate hike. Mm, which is what officials are most concerned about. It looks like that's their main concern at the moment now, and, that they just go too far and tip the economy into recession. But exactly. as I said earlier, the data's showing the opposite. It's not tipping into recession at all. It's actually accelerating. Yeah. Um, Alex, the, the other big events that's going on, China. Um, particularly uh, the woes in the property sector, which are now spreading to the financial sector and, and some of the uh, shadow bank, uh, some of the shadow banking institutions. How much is that likely to be a, a global sort of credit event that could shake markets? I think it will not spread into a global credit event, but uh, the local market would remain bearish for a long term. I think uh, for a long, long period. I say, I would say, because. Uh, um, um, the 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 public market actually is a bubble is already gone, and then uh, we probably may see the aftermath right now. And uh, I think the policies makers are, are using the old tools. They need the private enterprises to boost the economy. I, I've pointed out this uh, many times here, uh, because right now uh, the the economy is transforming, and if you are trying to boost the long growth, actually people. People have nowhere to go because you in the in the old model probably you 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 lend to companies they bought equipment and land and mm. then to to make money, mm. but in the in the current in in the in the new economy they are borrowing money or they are they are using money to 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 get a higher user base, mm. which are 
used on marketing expenses, which will be gone and nothing left, just uh, some uh, expenses. So I think uh, this is uh, very um, risky for lenders to, 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 to boost lending to those companies with hopes. So we, you need companies like Alibaba or, or Tencent to do the investment, just like Microsoft to invest in open AI. Mm. So I think uh, in in China they are they are they are focusing too much on the old ways. So I think uh, this is a wrong way to go. And private enterprises those are just uh, uh, lying down because uh, they they are being regulated so much uh, in the last two years. So I basically I think the momentum is gone. So so right now that's why we are so bearish. Mm. Is this turning into a liquidity crisis now that um, you know it's been building for months, hasn't it? But are we seeing a, a sort of liquidity crisis, widespread liquidity crisis on the mainland? Yeah, I think uh, it's become a confidence crisis. Uh, and also, I think uh, they, they, they are more concerned about uh, what will happen in the med- medicine se- uh, sector in the mm. last uh, two weeks. So uh, in, in just a short term, of course, we are not repeating the, the case of the education sector two years ago. But I think uh, the, this also dampened the uh, confidence in business. Uh, because uh, you know that uh, uh, if you do something, actually, you will be risky for for mm-hmm. investigation. So I think uh, that's why the whole China is uh, lying down right now. So this is why we've seen big falls in stocks like Alibaba Health and and, uh, and JD Health and so on. Yeah, uh, this is this is okay because if you compare that with the education sector, which is down fifty percent overnight and then yeah. and then ninety percent over a period, uh, so that is that's a, not going to come back. Is yeah, it? This is this is not too much right now <laughs> but uh, but still it is affecting the sentiment and um, Alvin what do you think is this China's Lehman's moment some people have been comparing it to that haven't they well the property sector debacle in China is uniquely China it have no meaningful insignificant impact in terms of global economy mm. and I would not even name it as like, the Lehman moment Lehman moment was an event that happened that trigger the property sector in China the bubble had burst two years ago and have continued to run down over the last two years, right? Uh, the 20 years of property bull market in China has ended, and now it's payback time. It's wealth destruction. So many people in China, and they are, they are, they are, they are fanatical on owning properties, and also the property developer issuing you know, offshore bonds. Unfortunately, the offshore bond, but the property sector offshore bond issued by the Chinese property developers, year to date as of last Friday, it declined by another 54%. And mm. last year, it declined 35%, and the year before, 37%. So, I mean, like, in terms of wealth destruction, this is, like, you know, it, this is astronomical from both actual ownership of properties in China, physical properties, ownership of equities, A share, H share, you know, the, 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 the shares listed in America, the ADRs, ownership of property developer bonds, these trust products, the wealth management products. And that now is cascading to a confidence crisis. The policymakers so far, what they're introducing is moving the needle, 
right? You are not gonna people are not gonna buy properties buy properties if the mortgage rate is one percent lower. If the if the, if, the, if a property price can decline twenty percent over the next one year, is, has the confidence just completely gone? Are people not buying properties at all, or are they buying them for maybe state-owned developers and avoiding the private developers? How, how bad is it in terms of demand for new housing on the? Uh... In, in in the case of properties, the the, the confidence crisis is immense. People just mm-hmm. most people just stop buying irregardless really? who's developing. Why don't they it's, buy in the secondary market instead? If they're worried about developers not finishing the projects well, and developing why, them, why, why not buy in the secondary yeah, market? Yeah, there are a lot, of, a lot of inventory in the secondary market. If you mm. buy today and if you can wait two months later and you may get it 20% cheaper, why do you buy today? Nobody is going to catch a falling knife. Right, so to speak, right? Mm. And if you're in tier three, tier four city, you, there, there's no way you can even sell your properties. There's no taker, no taker. Mm. In the tier one city, you're okay. So, Alex, this is spreading, isn't it? So firms like Zhongrong, they've, they've missed uh, something like $14 million in payments, uh, as we know of, to three Chinese-listed companies. Maybe there's plenty more um, that also haven't had payments um, as well. This is sort of becoming um, a financial issue as well, isn't it? Not just a property issue. Yeah, I think this has become a vicious cycle. Uh, as I would point out, I think uh, this is very difficult to get cash flow from property sales mm. because this is a deflation expectation in the property market uh, in the in China, and people could delay their buying decisions for a while. So I think uh, that is making the cash flow problems in the developers more. So I think uh, this would create some problems on the financial sector. But but luckily, I think uh, most uh, banks are stay owned. So people have still have confidence uh, on their sustainability, but I think uh, people would worry about the asset quality. So uh, that's why they are trading so cheap. Uh, but I think uh, the confidence will not be easy to come back because uh, if China uh, need to get out from this trouble, I think uh, this would be uh, transform transformation of the economy into new economy. So I think uh, the old economy part actually is dead. And the new economy will be more consumption-led, presumably, and uh, and you know focus, as you say, on private companies investing, um, which sort of goes against what the government really wants to see, isn't it? It likes to have control, much more control of the economy itself. Yeah, right. Now that's that's the problem because uh, China doesn't want company to be too so powerful, mm-hmm. so that's why they want to limit their power. Uh, but uh, the state-owned enterprises actually would not have those kind of execution uh, <coughs> ability. To, to do to, to, to repeat the success of uh, Tencent Alibaba. If China Mobile can be Tencent, I think uh, it would become Tencent. It, it has become Tencent already uh, mm-hmm. in, 10 years ago, I think. So that's why uh, right now we are having a problem uh, in the old economy part and also in the new economy part. I think uh, they, they need to unleash the power of those scientific enterprises. But uh, we are seeing uh, Jack Ma is already gone. So, uh, so people actually, uh, they are losing talents right now. So uh, I think uh, that is the real problem in China. Alvin, what's the what's the significance of the Evergrande bankruptcy in the in the US filing under under Chapter Fifteen? That doesn't make it bankrupt in China, of course, does it? Which is where all its assets are. But presumably, it's uh, it protects the assets in the US. But how significant is this? In in terms of the the uh, the creditors in China, this is a, a, a insignificant event. 
you know, Evergrande having having liquidity crisis for more than two years, and this is a slow progress, the evolution, and finally it become a cross border legal tussle, right, uh, for the U.S. debt holders to protect their rights with Evergrande filing Chapter 15 in America, right. Um, that the, the core, the core is you now with, with the lack of confidence and properties are not selling, right? And the problem have mutated to the one of the some of the best, including say like Country Garden. Country mm. Garden May and May last year was still rated investment grade B double three by Moody's, mm. and look at what happened mm-hmm. to Country Garden these two weeks. Mm. They are unable to pay the debt. Right. So, I mean, if, if you're a property developer, you are sitting on developed, finished properties and you're un- unable to sell, this God cannot help you. Mm. Mm. You, require, you require property developers, you develop and you dispose of, you sell. In a deflationary environment we have right now, the, 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 the property buyers are just holding off. And the lack of confidence and mutated to the consumer sector, the consumption you just mentioned, right? Mm. Um, I mean, like, you know, now the, of course, the policy will be like to, to, to boost consumption. But where is consumption going to come from? The state-owned enterprise, they are reducing, uh, they, they're cutting salary. The private enterprise are cutting workers. The youth unemployment is you now university graduates as escalating. So where is the consumption going to come from uh, mm. that people are going to spend their money? Plus, you look at the, your bank account, right? And interest rate deposit rates going lower. The uh, your your investment in stocks is 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 losing money. Your investment in wealth management product is losing money. Your 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 mm. property <laughs> you own are losing money. Not and a good environment, is it? Tremendous negative you know, feed, feed, feedback mm. loop for 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 consumer confidence. Now, Alex, two two developments in the markets. First of all, the Chinese yuan it hits seven point three four in offshore markets uh, last week, close to a a fifteen month low. The the PBOC now seems to be really pushing back against that, doesn't it? It's being very aggressive in trying to um, hold the yuan up. I, I'm wondering why wouldn't it be better for the Chinese economy if the yuan was weaker? I think uh, the yuan would be weaker. Later on, as I pointed last week, I think the mm. depreciation would be slow, but I think it would depreciate. I think they would manage the depreciation, but they cannot change the trend. So as long as the, the depreciation is not that fast, because if is they are they would be okay with that, because a lower one probably would be would be better for the economy longer term. But I think uh, they they are worried about that a sudden huge depreciation would be disastrous because uh, pe- many people probably would be un- unprepared. So I think uh, they probably are trying to manage the depletion speed only. Because if, if the one is uh, eight overnight, then I think a lot of people would be dead. So, <laughs> so, so they probably would try to, to slow down the depreciation, but I don't think they would change the trend because the interest differential actually is, uh, is negative yeah, for, so for, the, much, for the one. Yeah, so, so I think uh, the, the, the direction will not change. So we are going lower, but uh, the speed would not be that, that fast. Are, are there any signs of capital outflows? I mean, this is not the same as what we saw in 2015, is it, where there were um, big capital outflows, but nevertheless, any signs that they're picking up? I think that they would be controlled, so uh, no no huge sign right now, yeah. Alvin, what are your thoughts on the on the Chinese yuan? I mean, it's heading for well, almost 7.35. It hit last week. Are you um, bearish as well, like Alex? The Chinese yuan or renminbi, unlike every major currency, is not a convertible currency. 
is not freely traded. It's what PBOC says, right? And PBOC had the balance between the the the, the importers and the exporters. That both sides of the economy is important exports. A sharp depreciation of the renminbi would be devastating for the importer. Would be that will will bring in import inflation now into China. Although it may boost export. So it's not in the best interest uh, of PBOC to induce a sh- or to to allow a large sharp depreciation of the RMB. I agree with Alex totally on this on this point. Now, however, yes, I also agree that directionally, I think we are heading lower. Right? It's just over time. It's a managed managed control depreciation. Now, in terms of capital flow, capital flow is airtight. Now, right now, it's very, very difficult to uh, to 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 transfer money out of China. Uh, however, um, the, the, the there will be a small amount on and off, and uh, you know, continue going on. Now, and for for foreign capital flow into China, I, I believe, unfortunately, it come to a standstill. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, net net, I believe that yes, in the longer run, we'll see gradual depreciation of the renminbi. Okay, and Alex, what about stocks? The uh, the Hang Seng now in a bear market. Uh, the China Enterprises Index down over eleven percent so far just this month. So it's the worst performer out of ninety two global sort of equity benchmarks. How much worse can it get? I think from time to time we may get some technical rebound, but I think uh, the overall trend is down, like your man be. Uh, because uh, after the um, failed rebound last month, I think uh, people confidence actually uh, hurt more. So um, they 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 are they are no passive buyer for long term investing in China. I think because in the the long term experience is so bad. We are back to the level ten to fifteen years ago. So mm-hmm. that means you're underperforming the whole world uh, for decades. If your MPF is in China, then then you probably would be very would feel very very bad right now. So I think. Uh, there's no passive money like the U.S. to support the the index overall, and then there are only speculators left. So people are betting on policies relief from time to time. But I've said the policy relief actually is in the wrong direction. This is in the, they are using the old ways, so the real benefit actually is limited. So I think uh, the stock market will be going down. Actually, we are at 17 something right now which is not too bad given the the property market situation in China and the whole mess, I think. So we probably may see the market going down at a slow pace, but I think the direction is still down. Alvin, what are your thoughts? Are you as, are you as bearish as, uh, as Alex? I'm, I'm, I'm almost as bearish, right? <laughs> at, at, this, at this valuation level, it's enticing. However, now in the market, there's a, there's a saying that uh, when something is cheap, it may, it may stay cheap for quite a while. Mm. It may stay cheap for, cheap for many years to come, right? Uh, right now, the confidence in the equity market, both for domestic Chinese investors as well as Hong Kong local investors, the global investors, uh, is a very low level. Right? You look at Hang Seng Index, from the year 2012 to the end of 2022, 10-year cumulative return, it was minus 12.69%. 10-year mm. cumulative return. And there have been now talk in the market that it's a Chinese equity market resembling something we have seen before. 
the Nikkei two two five, the Japanese equity mm. market, right? keeps getting compared to what's going on in Japan, doesn't yeah. it? At the beginning of the nineties, exactly. And that will be that will shock anybody, right? I mean, the Nikkei two two five peak on December twenty nine, nineteen eighty nine, Peter. That was thirty three years ago. I remember it well. <laughs> and 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 it's, we are not even we are not even back to thirty nine thirty eight thousand. Never seen that again. 000. Never. Yeah. How how much, Alex, should um, global companies, U.S. companies, be thinking about their earnings from China? Because obviously what happens in China is important for the rest of the world, isn't it? It's, it's sort of inextricably linked to China. Are we going to see companies revising down their earnings forecasts because of what's happening on the mainland? Yeah, of course. I think uh, those who have more exposure in China probably would be revaluing their situation. But I think the good thing is that uh, we have a Middle East to coming to 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 compensate part of it, right now uh, you can see the football um, <laughs> football, football market right now. Uh, the 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 Middle East are so rich. I think they're so, buying uh, every football player in the world, aren't they? At the moment, all the good ones. They are paying hundred million yes. for a year. So I think uh, this is unbelievable. So I think uh, uh, people probably will be we are addressing the power of Middle East. So we are. Giving, uh, we are changing. I think uh, people probably would be more Middle East oriented in their thinking right now. So I think uh, that probably another evaluation that would be needed because right now probably they, they, they need to devalue the exposure in China. But I think uh, India or Middle East, I think, uh, would be a new point for thinking. So I think uh, global companies actually will have another growth point. So that probably compensating the loss in China. Alvin, final word to to you, the global impact of what's happening in in China and and in the markets. For those American companies or global companies who derive significant part of revenue or sales from China, yes, they should start to worry a little bit, right? Not significant. It's not collapsing. It's just not growing. Okay, Mm. let's put it this Mm. way. It's not collapsing. It's growing. It's not growing, right? And with the sheer size of the scale of the consumption, 1.4 billion people, that is a huge market. You put the entire Middle East together, it's not even 70 million people. The largest country in Middle East, Saudi Arabia, is 34 million. Kuwait is 4 million. Qatar is, 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 is the million. 3 million, right? something like that. <laughs> yep. Now, UAE is 7.5 million. And everyone, all of them combined, not even, no, not even 5% of China. Okay. All right. Well, interesting to hear your thoughts there. A lot going on. Well, we'll be following this with great interest over the coming days and weeks. You heard that Alvin Chua, who is managing partner of Mensa 360 Global Advisors, and Alex Wong, director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management. I'm joined now by China specialist and author Mark O'Neill. Good morning, Mark, and thanks for coming in this morning. Good morning. Thank you for the invitation. Well, this this morning, we've been talking a lot about uh, the property sector on the mainland and, and the woes in the property sector that are now spreading to the more broader uh, financial um, sector. The, the big problem seems to be the government seems to be lost at the moment. It doesn't really seem to know what it needs to do to try and reverse this decline and, and stabilise the markets. How, how big a problem is it for, for the Chinese government? Oh, it's a, it's a profound problem because... The economic miracle since 1980 has basically been fueled by what we call a virtuous cycle, which is the government, the local government sell land, they use the money to build infrastructure, to build industrial zones, they attract companies, 
people move to the city to work in the companies, they need to buy homes. So they buy apartments. The prices of the apartments go up. The developers build more apartments. The land price goes up. The local government gets more money. Do you see how the cycle works? Mm, mm. And this this cycle is it's been a miracle. Nowhere in the world have house prices gone up so fast as in China since 1980. People who buy apartments have an asset that's that's increasing in value. The local governments have more and more money. They can build uh, high-speed r- rail, wonderful new airports, expressways. They can improve the the infrastructure. And so it's a wonderful way to improve the economy. Well, similar to Hong Kong because Hong Kong relies on land sales too. But this has fueled this miracle of the last thirty years. And then what happened is that um, the developers built too many. Um, we think sixty, seventy, some say ninety million empty apartments in China. And the new government under President Xi is a more, can I say, communist and more traditional Marxist government. And Professor Xi, President Xi said, "Houses are for living, not for speculation." Mm. So, I think quite rightly, he wanted to make houses more affordable for ordinary people, and he wanted to uh, reduce the speculation and 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 bring demand and supply more in balance. And then we had the COVID、uh, pandemic, which stopped everything. And then they issued this、uh, regulations about the three red lines, which you've spoken about often.、Mm. And I think it's the combination of those three things. So many developers cannot meet the three lines criterion. So they they have no more money. They can't go on building. And the demand has slumped. The China's birth rate is now record low. The number of children is record low. So the basic demand is going down. And so we're now in in this. We're sort of trapped now because this model doesn't function anymore. But it's very hard to see how the government can get out at this moment. And for Chinese people, it, it sort of frightened them, hasn't it? Because they are not used to seeing the value of their homes go down. Well, yeah,、uh, you know, since 1980, it's been a、uh, an axiom in China: if you buy a property, your property will increase in value.、Um, uh, that's not the case with stocks. It's not the case with other instruments, but that's been the case with property. So that belief. That religious belief almost has fueled this property boom, and as we know, the property sector accounts for twenty-five, perhaps thirty percent of the, the whole economy. So it's been a wonderful way to, to 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 fuel the economy for so long. But this belief has now been broken,、mm-hmm. and then, in addition, of course,、uh, there are many people who have paid for apartments, and the apartments are not finished. And we've seen、uh, a lot of protests,、uh, people demanding their money back or demanding completion of the properties, and that's added to this loss of faith. So I think a lot of young people in China now, especially those who have no children, are saying, "Why buy? It's much more logical to to rent.、Mm. If you rent,、uh, the rents in China are、uh, generally modest, unless you're in a very big city." Uh, you know, you have a much more comfortable life. You don't have this huge mortgage burden, 
and uh, they see the stress of those who have the heavy mortgage. So that's another depressing factor for the market. So people, the, many young people don't want to buy anymore. Why don't they buy in the secondary market instead? If they're worried about, you know, these properties not being finished and not being delivered, um, why don't they go and buy in the secondary market where prices are cheaper and you don't have the same problem? Well, of course, that's a, that's a good option. But I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, we've been watching uh, YouTubes by young, uh, rather alternative Chinese. I can't say they're the mainstream. And what they say is we don't accept this model that you work 12 hours a day, you work six days a week, mm. you have very little time for yourself, you uh, borrow heavily to buy, even in the secondary market. Uh, you know, you're, you're a slave to your apartment. You're a slave to this pressure. And so many of these young people, they're trying to find alternatives to this, this lifestyle. And, of course, the, the most important alternative is not to land yourself with a, a large mortgage. That mm, you can't repay for, for many years and the value of the asset is going down. Mm, yeah. So what is it then, if, if this model is broken, the financing model for these property developers is broken, we, we need a new model um, for them. What is it going to look like? Because we know what it's not <laughs> going to be. It looks like um, the government isn't going to bail out these property developers. It seems absolutely adamant it's not going to do that. No, I, and I think... I think <coughs> You know, President Xi, you know, has quite a strong ideological line on this. You know, for for the traditional communist, you know, the property developer is not necessarily a good man. I mean, he's a good man if he builds apartments for people to live in. That's good. But, you know, many of the richest people in China are property developers. So, no, I, I think the line's been set. I don't think that can be changed. So they've got to find other engines of growth. So... One of them, for example, is green energy. Now, in this field, China has done remarkable success mm. in terms of building uh, solar power, wind power, developing electric vehicles. And China is now the world leader in electric vehicles, in the lithium batteries that power these electric vehicles. Um, uh, the Chinese companies are soon going to move into the European market, and they aim to dominate the European market in electric vehicles. So that's a very promising uh, sector for to drive economic growth. But of course, it's 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 much smaller than the property sector. It, mm. it can only employ you know hundreds of thousands of people and 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 you know um, in factories and distributors and exporters and so forth. Um, then we also have the. China 2025 plan, which is that China be a world leader in uh, advanced sectors, uh, robotics, AI, um, aerospace, and other, other sectors. Again, th this is, this is, these are all very promising. There's huge government investment in these sectors, um, and they're ones with, in which China is uh, competitive at home and competitive abroad. But again... The, the the numbers involved are not big enough because mm -hmm. the the property model was was wonderful because it was a national model you could do it in northeast china you could do it in central china you could do it in southwest china <laughs> mm -hmm. you did it everywhere whereas these uh, you know these 10 sectors they're quite uh, specific and of course they require highly skilled workers which is not the majority 
So is this 40-year boom now over? I mean, the International Monetary Fund says China's growth is going to be below 4% now in the coming years. If you ask some of the, uh, the, the private economists like Capital Economics, they say growth is already 3% and it's going to fall to around 2% in 2030. This is going to damage, isn't it, Beijing? Because it means that, um, that the, the objective set by President Xi of doubling the economy's size by 2035, that, that's not going to happen. And it's also going to make it much harder for China uh, to overtake the US as the world's biggest economy, which has sort of been its long-standing ambition. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I completely agree with those forecasts. I think the, the, the China boom, the China economic miracle has come to an end. And the annual growth we're going to see in the years ahead will be three, three, four percent, maybe even two percent in bad years. Mm. And so, this is m more sort of economically rational, and we hope it will lead to house prices which are easier for the majority of people to accept. But you know, China is still a country of one point four billion people. Um, it's got to find jobs for, you know, 11.3 million graduates every year, plus all the million others who are leaving mm. secondary school. So this is now, I, I would say for the government, the number one headache. Um, and that was why they wouldn't publish the figure for the youth unemployment, mm. because it's it must be 22, 23% now. Which doesn't help foreign confidence, does it, in the markets when you want to have, you know, transparent data, you're, you're cancelling some of your important uh, uh, updates. Well, I mean, all the foreign investors say now that in China, national security trumps the economy. So in the era of Hu Jintao or of Jiang Zemin, I think they would, the leaders would have strived to put the economy first. You know, GDP growth was the number one priority. Uh, but now, I think under President Xi, I think national security, which is internal security and its foreign security now, are seen as more important than economy. So um, it, th that makes the, the economic management much more difficult. And uh, the best way to find work for people is, of course, the private sector. The private sector employs uh, more people in the state sector and it's more vigorous. I mean, mm -hmm. it grows more rapidly. But there has been a very significant change. Um, of course, COVID was the main reason. Uh, many, many companies shut, shut, were forced to shut because of COVID and that wasn't the fault of the government. But many of these companies have not uh, reopened again and the ones that have reopened are not hiring as much as before. And uh, the private companies are feeling that we're more like in the earlier era of uh, communist rule, which is the state companies are very much favoured and they have much better access to state credit and, you know, uh, state policies favour the state sector. Mm. And so private companies now are much more uneasy and that means you don't want to borrow a lot to invest, you don't want to take, along, take on a lot of new employees. And again, I don't see how that's going to change because I think that the, the official line is very clear. How much of a risk is it that as the economy slows, 
It also undermines support for President Xi, the, the, the Chinese government overall. And then the Beijing responds by becoming more repressive at home, more aggressive abroad, which then, of course, is going to raise the risks of conflict, isn't it, over things like uh, Taiwan, for example. How, it seems that the economic slowdown is going to be linked to the political developments as well over the coming years. Yes, I... I I, th- I think so, and you know it's not uh, it's not good. But um, one of the things we learned in COVID was that the, the the Chinese government has developed surveillance techniques which I think are unmatched in the world. I mean, Russia under Putin is is an extreme dictatorship, but I think in technical matters they are years behind China. So I think Russia still uses the more old-fashioned methods, you know, police and neighborhood committees and, and, and people reporting on their neighbors and, you know, the old methods to control people. Whereas, of course, as we saw in COVID, China now has extremely sophisticated ways to monitor people and, 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 and follow people and know what they're doing. So I think the government, of course, is worried about social unrest and you know, discontent and so on. But I think they feel they have this um, techniques, they have the mechanism to be able to control it. And you've been following China for a long time, haven't you? I think since about 19, 1978, so more than, more than 40 years now. I mean, how do the, the challenges that are being faced now by China compare with what you've seen over the past 40 plus years? Well, I mean, we have to say that <laughs> the China we see today is unrecognisable from the one that that I saw, you know, when I first went 1980 and then in the mid-1980s. The mid I mean, we have to pay tribute to the extraordinary developments and sophistication that has come over these last 40 years. Mm. I mean, uh, my first visit in 1980, I went to a restaurant with a British friend and we sat in a restaurant eating uh, meatballs and there were about 60 Chinese um, all in blue cotton uh, outfits uh, above and below. You couldn't tell who was the man, who was the woman because everyone had very short hair and they were all stared at us <laughs> in, for the whole time we were having um, uh, our dinner. It was not at all hostile. It was very it was friendly, just very curious. And uh, my Chinese then was very poor, but my friend spoke Chinese well, so she chatted to them. And it was as if we were on different planets. You know, they, 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 they had no idea who we were or where we came from or what we were doing. And, uh, intensely curious, but ignorant. Worse. <laughs> But now, of course, it's the other way around. I mean, uh, Chinese are extremely elegantly dressed. They buy the most expensive consumer products. They they buy Porsche and Lamborghini cars. They don't ride bicycles anymore. You know, the the world's uh, Mm. uh, changed upside down. And and you've written you've written a lot of books about China over over the years that you've been out, and Hong Kong as well, I should say. Yes, uh, um, yeah, I've written fourteen books actually, um, and China is a, a, an enormous subject. <laughs> I mean, you could spend a hundred years and you wouldn't finish r- writing. Um. And, and what's the latest one? Well, the latest one is not so much about China. It's called Out of Ireland. It's about myself. 
um, it's my exploration of my Irish heritage. So we do have um, some uh, chapters about China toward the end, and the final chapter is the Chinese in Ireland, um, which is also a very good story. I mean, uh, about 10 years ago, the mayor of Dublin, uh, Hazel Chu, is a, a Hong Kong lady. Uh, her parents were uh, legal migrants in Dublin, and they worked in a restaurant. They were cleaning dishes, and they met and fell in love, and they got married, and Hazel was their first child. And Hazel's mother is what we call a tiger mother. You know, she was very determined and that her daughter would have a better life than she had. So Hazel was very good at school. She became a lawyer. She joined the Green Party, and then she was elected as mayor of Dublin. And she's the first ethnic Chinese to be the uh, mayor of any major capital in the West. So mm. it was it was a really landmark, and I, I think rather a praise for Irish people that they would accept uh, an ethnic Chinese as the mayor. Mm. And I mean, out of Ireland, it evokes you know people leaving Ireland to go elsewhere, and of course. Ireland has been one of the one of the biggest countries in the world, hasn't it, for emigration over over the years? Well, uh, the, the population of Ireland now is seven million. Now, in eighteen forty one, it was eight point one million. So the population now is lower than it was in eighteen forty one. Mm. So th there's almost no country in the world where the population has gone down <laughs> yes. over the last two hundred years. So the main reason is yes, that the emigration has been so heavy. But uh, one of the themes I want to bring out in the book is <clears throat> this has now changed. Um, well, China has had its economic miracle. Uh, Ireland has had its economic miracle too. And the GDP per capita of Ireland last year was double that of Britain. Now, when I was growing up, uh, Ireland was a poor country, agricultural country, um, uh, maybe 70% of the secondary school children would emigrate. I mean, to, 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 if someone had said that the per capita GDP of Ireland would surpass that of Britain, you, you would be laughed. Mm -hmm. You'd be mm -hmm. la you'd be thrown out of the pub. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it, Ireland has greatly developed uh, in the last thirty years, and uh, we were there in July. I was giving a book talk uh, on on the book, and the prosperity was quite astonishing. And the streets of Dublin, you could see Chinese, uh, Arabs. Africans, uh, Romanians, uh, people from all over the EU. I, I mean, something one couldn't imagine, you know, when I was a child, when the only people you saw in Ireland were Irish people and a few tourists. OK, well, Mark, thank you very much for coming in this morning. Very interesting to talk to you. We'll have to do that again soon. That's China specialist and author Mark O'Neill. And do take a look at his book, Out of Ireland. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves in my daily newsletter. Take a look at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back with another show tomorrow. Joining me then will be Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Jeff Howie, market strategist at the Singapore Exchange, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Woods. See you tomorrow. Money Talk 